Okay, everybody, uh, welcome to uh, our From the Earth to the Moon podcast. Uh, my co-host is Peter, and I'm Doug. And we are going to do today episode three, We Have Cleared the Tower, which uh, aired April 12th, 1998, and is directed by Lily Zanuck, uh, wife of Daryl Zanuck of Zanuck fame, and uh, written by Remy Bouchon of 24 fame, I believe. Uh, welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. So this is the story of Apollo 7, right? Our first manned Apollo flight. Right. It's the story of Wally Shira. It's basically... <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> right. Um, and I guess to a much lesser extent, uh, Walt Cunningham and Don Isley. Way lesser. So uh, we start off our episode with a brief recap of the Apollo 1 fire. Um, and then we uh, are shown the missing man formation of planes flying over uh, Gus Grissom's funeral. And we've seen that before, for example, in The Right Stuff. There's actually, I think, two missing man scenes in The Right Stuff. Right. You, um, can't make a, you can't really make any kind of show, whether it's documentary or entertainment, about, about the astronauts that doesn't in, or test pilots that doesn't involve funerals. Right. Um, and and we learn early on that this episode has two, I think, uh, unusual casting choices. One is Mark Harmon plays Wally Shira. Right. Mark doesn't, Harmon. It didn't look much like Wally Shira, really. No, and doesn't doesn't feel like Wally Shira. Like if there's lots and lots of video of, of Shira on YouTube, and man, Mark Harmon's a weird choice for this. And then I think also kind of strange is Peter Horton. Yeah. Uh, he plays our cinematographer, um, and I think like the Peter journalist or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I think Peter Horton is known to me uh, from his role on Wikipedia. He played Gary, not in Wikipedia. Sorry, he played Gary on Thirty Something. Right. Did you watch Thirty Something? Yes, not all of them, but I watched them on and off. Yeah. No, I mean he basically like he's kind of playing the same character here that he played on. 30 something like it's kind of it's kind of weird to see him like he's acting the same way like it's it's kind of hard to take him out of that you know i guess that's um, his thing but you know he, he's been he, in a bunch of stuff like uh you know I, I don't can't remember offhand but he's been in a bunch of stuff and mark Harmon, you know i, I understand mark Harmon's a very you know uh well-traveled seasoned uh, actor has been in a lot of stuff so they probably figured this guy uh, will show up and read his lines he'll show up and he's he's right he's known you know so that who's everybody who's who's a showrunner wants um known the more famous, the better, in other words, to fill a part, right? I mean, to them, generally, right? As long as they can they can show up and read their lines, like you said, say their lines, and the more famous, the better. So Mark Harmon is, is known. So, uh, you know, they're encouraged. They're, they're, I understand the casting in that sense. You know, it's, it's funny because he kind of like, he when he was in college, Mark Harmon, like he must have majored in smarmy because he's really got <laughs> smarmy down in this thing. Peter Horton, by the way, kind of reminds me of you. <laughs> oh, really? That's funny. Um, so uh, we see, uh, we open with, they're prepping for the Apollo 7, and this, this flies not on a Saturn V, but on a Saturn 1B, because they're only going to orbit 
right. they don't need a full Saturn V. And we see uh, some nice, nice scenes that are, I think, a little bit of mix of model work and a little bit of CGI thrown in for polish of the Saturn One B assembly. And then we meet Gunther Wendt. Yep, he also features relatively prominently in this one. Yeah, and then the, the guy who plays him does a good job. I'm trying to see who played him. Um, you know, and you know they don't gloss over the fact that you know he was a Nazi. Yeah. Um, you know, like they go so far as to acknowledge that he's sort of called the Pad Fuhrer. Mm. You know, and again, that's sort of a delicate way for them to sort of acknowledge the presence of, you know, former Nazi rocket scientists. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, like the old what's the old story about how the just the way um, the Russians and the American side, you know, fought two fronts and converged on Germany. Right. In, in 1945. Uh, and they ended up, you know, it's like seizing parts of Berlin, seizing parts of Germany, and then immediately beginning the Cold War, right? The same way they seized rocket scientists. <laughs> so the two space programs are like almost, you know, a, a competition between who, what rocket, what German rocket scientists each side of the Cold War stole. Although what's interesting is that, you know, the Russian program had Korolev as its head, who was a right. Russian, whereas ours, you know, we had von Braun as sort of our rocket genius who was, you know, without any doubt, a Nazi. I mean, right. went went flew for the Luftwaffe in World right. War II. It doesn't um, mean he was, I don't know if he was in a Nazi party or not. I don't, was he? I don't know. But he, he was certainly... Von Braun was definitely in the Nazi party. Like yeah, Von well, Braun had a Nazi number, and he's he's photographed many times wearing his Nazi party pin. Right. Um, well, he was Von, very prominent. Well, he's you know he said that he basically he justified it if there is such a thing or a way to do that. <laughs> he justified it by saying that you know he basically he had no choice and there was no way that he could complete his work. Unless right. he was a Nazi. But, you know, I mean, since we're going down this pike, you know, look, the Nazis used slave labor at Pinamunda. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure Von Braun was more than aware of that. So, sure. you know, I mean, you know, Von Braun and the U.S. government are great pains to sort of whitewash his history. But, you know, despite, you know, his protestations that it wasn't a big part of his life, he was a Nazi, you know, who was involved in lots of bad stuff. You know, sure. his biography, I believe it's called like I Aim for the Stars and like it was humorously uh, subtitled but I hit London. <laughs> <laughs> well, he aimed for London. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. And he hit London. Anyway. Yeah. Hey, um, one, so we, one technical question before we go. Yeah, like, sure. The, the 1B, did it like, do you know how high in orbit that thing went? The Saturn 1B? Like, you know, obviously. I have to look, but I think I'm it's, just I mean, I don't think it's as high as, for example, like uh, like the Titan, like the Gemini Titan flights could go really, really high orbits. Like, right, they could go they like eight, 900 them. miles, but I don't think that they went that high in Apollo 7, but I would have to double check. Yeah. Um, and we see the egress drill, uh, which is part of our, I guess, the way that they introduced that Gunter went as a meticulous pad leader, really paying attention to every little last detail. And the egress drill is shown as an extreme example of their drill technique, right, where they're literally, you know, riding down the sort of the bucket on the wire to get far enough from the pad. Although it's really hard to believe that if the rocket's going to explode, that the, any of that would work. You'd just be dead in a second. Right. 
you know? Right. They're just showing how things have changed due to Apollo one. And, and there were very significant amount of changes in the program. Yeah. Um, we are introduced to none other than D O'Hara, uh, the astronauts nurse and urine processor. Right. <laughs> yeah. Who's shown as the victim of one of Wally's, uh, practical jokes known as a gotcha. Um, <laughs> And uh, O'Hara was there for Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. And then she moves out. When all is said and done, she moves out to Ames. Because she is good friends with Al Warden, who we'll talk about in a future episode. Uh, Apollo 15 astronaut Al Warden. And he gets her a job out at Ames Research Center years later when she leaves the program. And then the woman, you know, the woman who plays D. O'Hara looks very, very much like D. O'Hara. Like, that, that was a really good like bit of casting and makeup and hair or however yes. they did it but she looks just like the real Dio Hara. Right. Um and uh you know we meet um for example uh our 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 co-astronauts Don Isley and Walt Cunningham. Right. Um and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about sort of the two of them as we go. Um and we learn early on that you know that Shira is planning this to be his last flight. Right. He flew in Mercury. He flew in Gemini. Uh, he's flying in Apollo seven. And then he is he's he's walking out the door after this one, which has important ramifications that are not shown in this episode at all that I guess we can talk to after we get to the episode. Um, and we get a sense that Shira and Don Healy of North American do not get along. And it's unclear, like, is Shira just being a dick or is he really pushing Healy on all these details because he wants the spacecraft to be as safe as possible or maybe a little bit of both. Right. That's one of the central aspects of the or themes of the episode is, you know, what is Shiraz motivation? What's he really like? Because he's extremely, he's very abrasive and very, he's really the central um, character, as we said in, in this episode. Yeah. And he doesn't, you know, it's funny because, he, you know, for all of his sort of like good time gotchas and pranks, he, he doesn't come off particularly well in this episode. Like, I don't think I'd want to hang out with Wally Shira, at least the way he's portrayed in this episode. He doesn't seem, yeah, he doesn't seem very jovial. Um, but on the other hand, they're basically, they, they do make an effort to sort of explain that he is... He's feels that he's sort of responsible for recovering the Apollo program in some ways because they had such a disaster with Apollo one and now they're going to fly for the first time and test a, a, a wide variety of things that they need to test. And, uh, in, in 10 day mission, I guess, 10 or 11 days. Right. And it's a very, very crowded schedule. And right. And so he feels a lot of pressure and he feels a lot of responsibility to the program, probably, I guess, to the country in, in a sense. And of course, to his family to to try to so that they won't perish and, and the other astronauts. Um, so he certainly sees himself, I'm sure, as. Uh, really under the point of, you know, the center of multiple points of pressure. They're very strong. Yeah. And again, you could understand that maybe it makes him short or, or a little bit less charitable than he could be in his interactions with people. Right. Um, but, he you figures... know, he he comes off 
pretty gruff and they don't even touch on the worst of it. Yeah. Um, there's a, there, I think, I think one of the most understated scenes in the episode is he kind of sticks it to Deke. Like, uh, there's that scene where they're talking about the flight plan, which is very, very crowded because they're trying to get as much done as possible right. to catch up. And, you know, it's been established in earlier episodes that Deke is grounded. He can fly, and it's a source of stress and embarrassment for him. And then Wally kind of... kind of Rubs it in. Yeah, he says, you'd be surprised how fast everything goes up there. You know, in parentheses, if you were an actual astronaut who flew in space... Right. If you were um, one of the real Mercury astronauts like me. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, you know, and Nick Searcy does a good job as Deke. Like, he's kind of like... Like it, it definitely chafes him, but you know he has the self control to not say anything. But right. he's, you know, he's pissed and he's he's rightly insulted. Yeah. Um, I like the I like the bit where they show um the engineer being interviewed by the film crew and he talks about the Apollo guidance computer and he talks about how complicated it is. Yeah, that was a great uh, scene. And I mean, he's you in could, this room full of, you know, 1968 technology. Right. Spinning tape reels. Right. You know, you could, there's a whole episode on the development of the lunar module that's coming up. I mean, you could do a whole episode on the Apollo guidance computer, like all the stories, the rope memory, all the interactions with MIT and the people there, like that, honestly, that's an episode that they could have done and didn't. Uh, but it's interesting. Yeah. And you know what? That That would have been great because when it comes to the highest echelon of dorkdom um really the, the <laughs> development of the the computer engineering computer science developments of apollo are absolutely you cannot overestimate them because they had to cram so much into so small a space and they were they were working so far ahead of the curve i mean they basically you know the story is that basically the integrated circuit was was developed for for the for that computer and um, so that you can't really you can't overestimate that, and I I think it's something I'm sure we're going to touch on again. I mean, you know that they used something really interesting. They used rope memory uh, in the Apollo guidance computer, which was um, it's like a weird form of read only memory. Like it's hard to describe, yeah. um, but it's literally like it's physical cables that are able to store and uh and and record you know computer data like it's there's nothing like it now but uh, right. they use this thing called rope memory there's there's a nice scene in the episode coming up on apollo 14 uh this is a little preview where they where during the apollo 14 landing there's a glitch in the computer possibly from like a, a loose ball of solder in the in the lunar module and they have to like literally write a hack while they're in lunar orbit and there's a great scene of like the engineers at MIT, you know, looking haggard and and sort of collegiate trying to sort of write this computer hack. It's a great little bit that we'll we'll talk about in the Apollo 14 episode. Right. Um they really they they do acknowledge in this episode but only in the most cursory manner Don Isley's infidelity with his wife, which if you read any of the astronaut biographies, they all talk about it. And it was basically an earthquake 
in the astronaut office because they were, you know, they had the time life contract. They were in the media spotlight all the time. They were under intense pressure from NASA to adhere to this sort of squeaky clean, all American image. And Isley was having an affair that ultimately led to his divorce. Um, And, you know, his, his divorce was such that many of the astronaut families would no longer associate with him. Um, he was no longer invited to social outings. You know, he literally kind of became persona non grata because everyone was afraid of being associated with him because it was such a negative and unusual thing. He was the first astronaut to get divorced while he was an astronaut. Mm-hmm. Um, and the astronaut wives all sided with his wife. Um, and it's at least part of why Don Isley never flew again. Right. Although, I guess, I mean, they do sort of acknowledge it. Uh, there's one little bit where he's late. He's late showing up on launch day because he slept with his mistress. <laughs> right. They, that's that's the one point that they, they reference it. So they, they put it in there. Um, you know, they do the Cliff Notes thing again. They just, they put it in as a, but it's it's fine. It, it, it wasn't badly done. But, you know, Don Isley died young, by the way. He was 57. Yeah, he had a heart attack in Japan, I think. Yep. Yeah, uh, he's only fifty-seven. Jim Irwin, who we'll talk about later on too. Jim Irwin dies young of a heart attack. Yeah. Um, he's also a, of Apollo fifteen fame. Um, you know, it's funny because if you read uh, Cunningham's book, uh, "The All American Boys," Cunningham is—he's—he's he's not very charitable towards Isley. Like he felt that he and Shira were carrying just. Portion amount of the work, like mm. there's a lot of resentment that Isley was always later, his mind was always elsewhere. Like he didn't, he was upset about the affair. Like if, like in Cunningham's book, he's pretty down on on Don Isley. But to flip it over, if you read Al Warden's book, uh, which I believe is called Falling to Earth, you know Al Warden uh, got in some trouble of his own later on, and you know Al Warden was. He remained friends with Isley, and when Isley had nowhere to go, like when he was shut out and, you know, completely on his own, you know, he could sleep on Al Warden's couch. Like Al Warden was, he was, you know, you're, you know, you're starting to find our outcast astronauts helping each other out. So, but it's funny because mm-hmm. I read Cunningham and and Warden's books back to back, and it's it's two very very different takes on the same person. Hmm. Um. So then, I mean, uh, we, we're pretty much now at the launch phase. I mean, we kind of get the sense that Wally makes peace with North American. They, they work out the, the ruling on the winds, right? Right. Um, you know, and then we get to the launch scene. And I think this episode, like the next episode, you know, is really split into the pre-launch and the launch. And it almost feels like both episodes... You know, they they completely change tone once we get to the actual space flight part and get away from all the preface. Um, and again, we get back to a little bit of mix of CGI and a little bit of model when we see the Saturn one be on launch day. And I do love the walkout scene where they are walking out to the launch pad with their portable ventilators. It looks great. Mm-hmm. It looks great. I mean, you know, some of the costume and set work in this show, like there's, there isn't one bad episode in that in that respect it's, it's killer and even like um uh gunther um you know gunther wentz uh his costume you know he, his paper he, hat his right his whole costume his little microphone boom and the white room and every, it just it looks so 
good. There's, there's never a second where you don't think it's real. Yeah, no, it looks great. I mean, the, yeah. that that whole that whole sort of like uh, gantry and and white room set we've talked about before. I love it. Yeah, um, I mean, the I want to hang thing, out there. Yeah, the important thing is, you know, they if it wasn't um, if it was less uh, well done than this, it would take you out of the episode in a sense because it, this really allows you to. It looks like it's documentarian, but higher resolution. You know, instead of being um, old, you know, black and white sort of NASA footage of little clips of stuff or a little staged interview, you sort of, you pass, it enables you to sort of pass through, um, the screen, pass through this sort of observer, um, sense that you get when you're looking at all that, all the documentarian type footage, right. And get into what happened, uh, and what's going on. And, and to me, you know, that really echoes what's great about this series is that if you're interested in it, which you are, if you're listening to this, um, that's what's so great about it. It brings you past that level and into sort of the nooks and crannies of what's happening. Right. And, you know, they go to pains to include a lot of technical details. And if you're not interested, you can just sort of like let them wash over you. And if you are interested, they're rewarding to see. Like they actually show them, for example, disconnecting from their portable ventilators and doing a leak test as they're getting in the, the command module. And again, that can all wash over you or it can be a nice little point for you. You know, that right. makes the show interesting or it gives it a little bit of depth. Right. And interestingly, I think in Apollo, isn't it Apollo 7? They do their own leak test later because all the like the uh, sewage systems don't aren't so great. <laughs> it's another type of leak test. <laughs> Seriously. Place must be um, leaked. We have a little bit of low level drama about the wind uh, and fear of hitting the tower. Um, we have that one little joke. Uh, that the that the weather guy that's sort of a callback to the weatherman saying that he's got all his equipment, but really the best equipment is that he just has a window that he looks out of, which comes back to they show that guy again looking at his window on launch day, the meteorologist basically deciding it's safe to launch. And then our launch has shown is essentially a mix of original and stock footage. And I'm 99% sure that there's a small error and that there is some Saturn V footage sort of very quickly cut in with the Saturn 1B launch there. Yeah, they probably didn't have enough stuff to show or something. Um, but, th you know, so this is, I mean, this is a strange way to do this episode because the episode ends here, right? I mean, literally the last shot is the is the, the rocket flying up into space. Right. And then the episode ends. And it is kind of a whitewash of the entire Apollo 7 mission because everything that this mission is famous for i mean every last thing this mission is famous for is it's not, not shown in this episode right it doesn't it doesn't really it's not really about the episode it's about the return to flight operations i mean it's not about the it's not about the flight itself um you know it's about the run-up to the flight and there's nothing about the flight well, and, and then, for example, the mission is kind of famous for for three things, really. One is that Wally gets a bad cold. Right. Right. Which become remember, when he, he ends up doing cold uh, medicines yeah. commercials when we were older. Yep. Um, which company was it he did the, he was, did the, uh, he did the commercials Act, for? Actifad, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's something like that. Act I remember when we were kids. Pseudofed. I remember when we were kids watching the commercials for his... Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, they were his, really effective. For his cold I, medicine. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that he that they were very effective commercials. I remember, like it was very, you know, it was very because the guy he gets on there and he says, like, when I was sick in space, I took this. I took Actifed. I think it was. I think it is Actifed. Yep, that's how good those commercials are. That I remember Actifed. And you know, the other problem too is, you know, when you're in zero G, like you can't get post-nasal drip like it can't doesn't go down the back of your throat like yeah, you're, you're stuck like it's you, all just like you're got a sinus full of snot right and you basically feel like you have a cold even when you don't because you get a little congested um <laughs> your head's always feeling congested but then more importantly right so the so wally was you know irritable to begin with he then he gets a bad cold in space right, right? and he's up there for you know a week and a half Right. And then we, we, you know, we can't talk about this episode without talking about the famous mutiny, right? The yeah. mutiny aboard Apollo 7, where largely spearheaded by Shara, they start to cut elements off the flight plan. Um, they get short with mission control. Um, right. Deke Slayton at one point has to actually come on as Capcom. He has a sort of a special, I think he has a little bit of a special title that sort of like wink, wink to tell the astronauts Deke's on the line. Right. Um, and, you know, he basically says, like, you've got to do what we're telling you. And Shira says, no. I mean, and some of this is because he's irritable and he's sick. And some of it is because once he lands, he's out of NASA. And he can do whatever he wants. Right. Um, like he didn't even wear, they didn't even wear their helmets on reentry because they yeah, were they fought about it. Yeah. Right. They were worried that they wouldn't be able to blow out their ears and clear their sinuses uh, during the pressure. And he was worried that he'd blow an eardrum from having his cold. Right. Um, and the couches were not really designed for them to reenter without their helmets on, because if they had a hard landing, their necks would hyperextend. Yeah. Uh, and the helmets protected them from that. Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, when you read anything about Apollo 7, and for example, in Cunningham's book, he goes on and on and on and on about the so-called mutiny. Um, right. And, you know, and this is what I mean, like, sure, again, no disrespect to Wally Shara. But he comes off as a dick. Yeah. In the sense that he kind of ruins Cunningham's career. Yeah. Because Cunningham and Isley get tarred by his brush. Right. Uh, and and the crew is basically, you know, all thrown in together. They, and they very much follow his lead. Um, and in their interactions with the Capcom, it's not just Sherrod. It's Isley and Cunningham kind of follow right. his lead. Uh, he's the commander. He sets the tone. And uh, I'm not it might have been Chris Kraft who basically said, like, none of these guys fly again. Yeah. And, and you know, it's all well and good if you're Wally Shara with your three flights behind you. But right. it's, you know, Cunningham, you know, that's a long run for a short slide. If you do one flight into Earth orbit and you're done. I mean, Isley, you could argue, was probably done anyway from his affair. Right. But not necessarily Cunningham. Right. right. And for example, I, you know, I keep mentioning Al Warden, you know, Al Warden gets divorced while he's an astronaut and he survives. I mean, granted, right. he's not the first guy to do it, but he survives. And, right. you know, his career isn't destroyed. His career, Al Warden's career is destroyed by something else that we'll get to. But uh, but I don't know, like, I guess for me, you know, I hadn't watched this episode in a while and I forgot that it ended with the launch and you know it was funny because I, as i was watching i would periodically check how much time is left and i was like wow there's only seven minutes left and we haven't taken <laughs> off yet i was like well, how, we're, we're, how are we going to show the mission and they really don't yes 
Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's a little bit of a cheat on the part of the producers to do it this way. Yeah. Well, you know, they had to obviously choose what they were going to feature. You know, I mean, they have, and they just, they made an editorial decision and they decided not to cover the flight itself. Um, they decided to cover the return to active Apollo after uh, Apollo one. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, if I waved the magic wand, I would want to see that as well. But I guess what they were thinking was based on the, the sweep, what I can imagine they're thinking is that based on the sweep of the, the Apollo program, what's more important for this mission is how they got back to got They got back in the right, got on track. Yeah. I mean, there's a, and you know, there's a, there's a little dig at the astronauts that's also not mentioned here. So previously, um, you know, uh, like there was sort of a tradition that they would give distinguished service medals to the astronauts when they landed and they didn't give it to them. <laughs> and they ended up giving it to them, believe it or not, in 2008. Um, <laughs> but by then, Isley is dead and uh, Shara is dead. So Cunningham was the only one alive. Yikes. So Isley's widow got the medal, and somebody else, I think it might have been Anders, accepted on behalf of Shara. But it's sort of interesting that, you know, they had to wait four decades right, to and kind of get a little little nod. Right, and Cunningham's been out of NASA for decades at that point. And has had a whole, you know, rest of his life. Yeah. The guy, by the way, the guy who plays Cunningham really looks like Cunningham. Yeah. Like, they give him the flat top. You know, it's funny how, you know, the, again, we're being a little bit negative, but hey, um, Cunningham in his book comes off as very arrogant. Like, his book mm -hmm. is written, it's not that long after. Like, his, some of the astronauts wrote their, their books pretty close to their flight. Some of the astronauts wrote their books decades after. I believe Cunningham's book is from the mid to late seventies. I think it might be 77 and it's still really close. Like he's still like his emotions are in it uh, a little bit on the surface and like Cunningham, he comes off as like a pretty arrogant guy and they kind of convey that in this episode. Um, whereas like, for example, the, the books that are written later, Cernan's wardens, etc. Like, you know, when they're writing these books, 30, 40 years later, they definitely have a, a more distant take and you know the things that made them mad don't make them so mad anymore decades later yeah um and isley is almost a non-character and as other than his infidelity we really don't get to see much of him in this right. episode i think isley i believe that isley died but i believe somebody wrote up his somebody published his memoirs i believe he wrote a memoir that never got published while he was alive and it got published after he died. It might even by the vintage space girl. Hmm. She might have been involved in that. I know that there's a, a Don Isley book, and I'm pretty sure that she's the one who kind of helped get it published. Interesting. I don't know. I don't know. I have to say that I think this is my least favorite episode of the show. I don't so far. I don't think it's. I think it's a big step down. I mean, I really liked episode, the last episode a lot. Episode two. But, you know, we're going to talk about next episode of four. I was sort of plus or minus on that one as well. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I look, I, I'm not going to deny it. I look to the astronauts and these sort of stories. I take a lot of personal inspiration out of them. Like, there's not a lot of inspirational stuff in this episode. Mark Harmon's performance just really grates on me. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll, uh, Peter Horton, I could live with. Uh, Mark Harmon, like, ugh, I don't know. I know the most inspiring uh, part of the episode is the the interview with the computer science guy. It is, it is, because he's he's so enthusiastic. Yeah, and and it gives you the sense that they're really. It's like the first time that they show they're really doing something amazing. That that's really the that's the uh, the moment of pride um, in this episode. I have to agree with you. I I don't know, like it's for me after this one, it's pretty much uphill. And even the even the lesser episodes that come after this, I think, are better than this. I also don't like the sort of like ham-handed way that they keep changing the 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 film stock. Yeah, you know when they go back and forth from, um, you know from the regular way things are filmed to sort of the way that it's filmed by the film crew with Peter Horton. You know, if you're Oliver Stone and A. Kitman Ho in JFK or uh, Natural Born Killers, like you can get away with that. They didn't pull it off here. It's, it's distracting and it feels forced. Yeah. I think sometimes their editorial decisions uh, are a little iffy in, on this show in general, but um I mean, you know, film editing wise, not story editing. Yeah, no, no, I know what you mean. <laughs> but I don't know. I think that's pretty much covers this episode. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely a a, um, a workmanlike job, shall we say? Yeah. <laughs> How's that for a low blow? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it has its high points, like they all do. And you know, again, this is all in the setting of two guys that not only are we fans, but we're sort of at least for me, in a way, grateful that they made this. It's like, oh uh, yeah, I'm, you know, it's that's like, a good word for it. Yeah, I mean, it's like you just. <sighs> there are only very limited circumstances in which you could make a series just with so many episodes just focused on on Apollo on one particular, you know, twelve episodes focused on a, a very narrow um, portion of American history and portion of the space program um, itself that was a major production. So, you know, grateful is a good way to put it. Yeah, no, that's a good way to put it. I think I'm more the nitpicker than you are. No, I mean, I, I, I get it. I, and, and to me, sometimes they make their decisions, their filmmaking decisions are questionable. Um, but, but I guess some of that is the price you pay for having a different director every time, too. Right? You don't have a consistent tone. Right. And that's part of it. And, you know, I mean, I got to, again, I'm grateful enough that I cut him some slack. And you can imagine that, you know, I looked online about the making of it. There's not a ton, but you can imagine that, you know, these, these were probably all made simultaneously. They probably, it just was too big a job for one one or two directors. You know, they probably had to just spread the wealth around. I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, Because if you look through the director's, one or two repeat, but really no. Um, actually, I'm looking through real quick. Looks like David Frankel doesn't yeah. he do a couple? Yeah, he does two. Yeah, but most of them are just one-offs. You know, yeah. Frankel does actually three, but the, I think the rest are all sort of one-offs, pretty much. All right, should we wrap there on Apollo Seven? Yes. 
All right. So up next, we're doing uh, one of my personal favorites. We'll do next uh, 1968, which we episode four, which we'll cover next time. Thanks, everybody. Uh, and if you like this, remember, too, that Peter and I also have another podcast, Popcorn Drink Combo, where we do um, current and vintage movie reviews. See you next time. All right. Thanks. <laughs>